it is tempting as a writer to tell a story, an easy to understand story, a even if complex, fully understood story where the villains are clear, the heroes are extolled, the events are fully cataloged, and the results and the lessons to be learned from whatever the story is about, everyone has learned them. And if they haven't learned them, we wag our fingers at the people who haven't learned them and get mad at them. So that is not what my first guest of the third season of What People Do does. His name is Jeremy Black. He spent many years as a professor, wrote many, many history books, many of which are in the field of military history, but not all. And now he's retired and still speaking and writing. Uh, excitingly enough, now writing books about fiction writers uh, like Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, so that's going to be very fun to watch in the meantime. But after uh, recording with him that one day, I went out the next day, January 2nd, a Sunday, and bought A Short History of War by Jeremy Black. And it has a measured, nuanced, balanced view of war. We would all like, after a war or after a battle, to identify all the things that people did wrong and, even more importantly, all the events that led to the war. I think Jeremy, as a historian, steps back and I find this very moving and a powerful stance to take is really just trying to look at the facts and he's not trying to overstep the bounds of the facts. What do we know? What could we extrapolate? But to guess at what people were thinking, to play what if and say, well, if this hadn't happened, then the war wouldn't happened. I think Jeremy tries oftentimes tries to take one step back from that edge. And uh, I tried to goad him into... Um, sort of responding to my devil's advocate positions. And uh, he, did, he didn't bite, which I thought was wonderful. Because as I present a devil's advocate position, if someone comes back with a nuanced, measured, balanced approach, I would always prefer that. Because I think Jeremy is closer to the truth than those books and stories tell us. Uh, Jeremy's trying to look at the facts gathering new information, and um, maybe not second-guessing and triple-guessing as much as uh, we Monday morning quarterbacks like to do when it comes to why wars happen, what causes them, and how we can avoid them in the future. Um, his book is wonderful, and I haven't finished it yet. Um, this conversation starts out talking about academia, um, which I thought was wonderful, um, and then we talk about war. So uh, enjoy my conversation with Jeremy Black. Imagine you are sitting on January 1st, uh, maybe after having a great uh, party on December 31st, and you're recovering and you need to sit back and have someone who's um, thought about a lot of things and thought about them well, talk to you about them. Hello, I'm Jeremy Black. Uh, I was until I retired at the beginning of 2020, the uh, established chair, that's the leading professor at the University of Exeter in Britain. And I'm a, an active teacher and researcher, and I've continued to both research and write in retirement. And although I have a number of fields, and if people are interested, they can look me up on Wikipedia or on my website, um, I think most people would argue that I'm primarily a military historian. And what I'm interested in in military history is in particular big picture stuff. Now, I've done the more technical side. I've 
written a book on the American War of Independence. I've written a book on Culloden and the 45. So I've done the, as it were, more tactical and operational side. But I think it's fair to say that I'm more interested in both strategy and in the development of military systems. So you, uh, that's fascinating. You just retired. You have now a storied career with a hundred or more than a hundred books you've written. I was curious, I kind of wanted to start with how did you get started in history? Why is this the thing that flagged your passion way back in school? Oh, I, I think, I mean, I was a rather neurotic and anxious child, uh, very much a sort of, um, sort of actually quite quiet. And I read a lot. I went to the library, the public library. I read a lot. And I was particularly interested in history books. And I think I was, you know, very committed to history uh, by the time I was eight and even more nine. So in, in a way, I'm being very hardworking, but lazy. I then followed the path <laughs> of least resistance. Was there something about nonfiction, about facts, things that had happened that was more compelling to you as a young reader than fiction and fantastical things? Oh, that's a good question. I actually, I read quite widely in fiction as well and was very interested in literature. Um, but no, I, I found history really interesting. I found why things happened interested me a lot. Now, there were some aspects of why things happened that didn't really interest me. After all, <laughs> science is all about why things happen. And, you know, I was pretty good at school at science, but it didn't engage my attention. But it was history. And the other subject I was really interested in and that I've sustained an interest in and indeed have published actively in the field is geography. So I've published a lot on maps. I've published on historical geography. I've published on geopolitics. And just as a personal prejudice, um, I actually feel very much uh, I approve of the French system in which historians are supposed to know a lot about geography. And I think the standard practice in the Anglosphere, um, where historians usually are woefully neglectful of geography, is rather disappointing. I was absolutely fascinated in my undergrad career. I was an English lit major, and then I took one geography course and was absolutely captivated and took two more, basically used up all my general education credits with them because I had never thought about the fact that geography affects and is affected by absolutely everything on the planet. Well, everything, the weather, well, the right. animals, the people. You're right. I mean, there are, I mean, obviously you're an American. And one of the interesting things about the United States is the United States has had some very good work done on its geography, but most Americans, although they might have mental assumptions about the geography of their area, where they're comfortable going to, where they're not comfortable, their, uh, their sense of their country, on the whole, America is a continent pretending to be a country and doing quite well at it. So in other words, you have uniform political parties, you have uniform consumer com uh, culture, and therefore Americans are apt to underplay the role of geography, maybe in their own country, but more particularly in other people's countries, where contrasts that are geographically uh, located and related are much more significant. I'm interested you were, uh, you were um, a, a literature major. I mean, the third subject I did at high school, at, at my last two years, so I did history, geography and English literature. And, um, you know, I was very interested in English literature. I didn't uh, read it at university because at that stage the subject was going through a very theoretical phrase. It's even worse now. And <laughs> the, 
whereas geography was going through a very mathematical phase, um, now it's got a terrible theoretical phase. But I've I've become more interested in English literature in recent years and indeed have published a number of works on authors and their times in which I try and locate what they write uh, with reference to the, histo the history of the period and also use the history of the period to illuminate what they write. So I've done that for Shakespeare and Dickens and Austen and Agatha Christie um, and Ian Fleming, and I've got books coming out of that type for Henry Fielding, uh, Conan Doyle, and Tobias Smollett, and I find that very interesting as well. Is that because of your interest in history, is that more compelling to try to deal with the facts and the reality of the moment as opposed to, and again, I, when I was in English Lit, there were kind of old-fashioned professors I gravitated towards. They were the ones whose attitude was, let's read this and get together and talk about it and consider all the historical context. And then how do how do we respond to it personally in this moment? I found that very powerful. Other people, as you said, had a theoretical lens. So Lacan was big, Freud, Marx. So everything was a Freudian, a Lacanian, a, a Marxist lens was what they used to look at these things. I just thought, well, that's just one lens. Don't you want to switch the lenses or, or don't you want to get into that author? What was happening as opposed to your ideas about how history or politics work throughout human history? Don't you want to get into what was happening to that author exactly in that moment, which sounds like more of what you're doing. Yes, I mean, specifically with English literature, I agree with you entirely. I mean, I there was in fact an article about it in the Sunday Times of, of London, but I spoke at the uh, University of Indiana's uh, James Bond conference in 2003 for the 50th anniversary of the appearance of Casino Royale, because Ian Fleming's papers are in the University of Indiana. And I was very unimpressed by a number of the scholars there who were fundamentally trying to fit Fleming into a mould of their literary theory, which, you know, I had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do um, with the mental, moral, uh, and dynamics of his um, and perspectives of his writing. Um, I'm currently at the present moment, I mean, I always do several things at once, but one of the things I'm doing is uh, writing a book on um, uh, the Gothic novelists and the literary stuff, the literary theory stuff on the Gothic novelists is <laughs> really, really <laughs> poor. Let's just put it like that. That's being polite. Is it, so being uncharitable, is it simply people, well, maybe it is being charitable. The people I I was in school with brilliant people who, again, they fell in love with one of these lenses, one of these theories just really compelled them deeply. So they went really deep into this theory and you take the theory and sort of apply it to everything, any field you're looking at. And so I, they were doing it all in good faith and it's all very interesting, but again, it feels extremely partisan and doesn't seem to open up a lot of possibility to, if you're obsessed with this lens and someone else is obsessed with this lens, don't you sometimes have to consider where their two little Venn circle diagrams interact and where your your theory starts to fail and theirs starts to work? And I don't, I think that's a tough job for people. Yes. I mean, I mean, per, it doesn't really tell you anything about the text or the author. It tells you about their perception, which right. is, no, is of no real consequence. I mean, you know, if somebody, let us say, Professor Smith, 
has views on Shakespeare, then they ought to be Professor Smith, writing as Professor Smith. They, the, the ability that they have to tell you much about Shakespeare, if it's absolute, if it's a theory which bears no relationship to the mental world of Shakespeare's period, is relatively, you know, flawed. It's a relatively flawed approach. How does it, you mentioned, I thought that was interesting, you said oftentimes, maybe for your entire career, it's been fun or been helpful to have multiple projects going at the same time. It sounds like you do that now. Is that generally your process? Do you have lots of things going and you sort of dip from thing to thing? Because I, I know a lot of times historians who are obsessed with a particular period or obsessed with a particular subject often try to just keep digging, digging, digging on that to come up with sort of a magnum opus as opposed to kind of hitting pieces of it along the way. Well, I suppose there are different processes. I'm not implying that my process is best. Sure. It's just how I am. I mean, you it has comes at an enormous cost. I mean, my blood pressure is terribly high, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but um, with reference to historians who essentially write the footnotes on their own work, I think there is a lot of that in the academy, the academic world. Um, being somebody who's prone to often make unkind remarks, I frequently have referred to the number people writing books in which you could fit everybody in the world interested into a telephone kiosk. So there is a question about the value of to society and indeed to the wider intellectual project of work that is too narrow or that is, let's just say, very narrow. Yeah. You might link it to an obsessionalism. You might link it to a wish or belief that they can be the definitive scholar on a subject when there is no such possibility as a definitive scholar scholarship. All history is by its nature an interim report. You cannot repeat the experiment of the past. You can only try and understand it, but inevitably our tools for understanding it are limited and flawed. And one of my books I referred to history as like a broken mirror in which many of the pieces have fallen out and the mirror itself is swinging in the wind. And I think that that, you know, in a part is a kind of pessimism I have, but looked at it a different way. It's a pessimism that is also very alive to possibility because if you do not believe that definitive works are, are possible, what you believe should be done is people write as well as they can. And I think that's quite empowering. Unfortunately, many people, many scholars lack much of a range. Um, I mean, you know, classic thing, which if I wish to irritate somebody who's being pompous and tells me <laughs> they're an expert on American history is I ask them something about the history of Canada. And they will say, well, I'm an Americanist. I can't be expected to know about Canada. And you just say to them, but that's pathetic. You know, Canada <laughs> describes a different form of development from a similar, you know, physical environment. You ought to be considering comparisons and contrasts. But people don't. And I suppose, again, linked to that, in my years of full-time permanent teaching in the university world, which was the 40 years from 1980 to 2020, I'd done a little bit before that, but essentially I started in 1980, I taught across a broad range. And I think that's very important. Many of the um, scholars who write often very narrow history often teach very narrowly. Yes. 
is is that tendency so the tendency of people because i had that um i remember this um very gentle row i had with somebody in grad school he was a medievalist and every time he'd be sitting everything would, would have to do with the middle ages he'd always bring it back to the middle ages and oh everything's such a medievalist he said you're such a dilettante and at the time i'm like oh is that good is that bad i had to think about that it is scary to be in the position trying to study a little bit of all the things and put them together because essentially you're leaving yourself open for not knowing all the time. And I think people sometimes for their own psychological reasons, focus on a single thing because it feels it gives them more, it gives their internal ego and personality more strength of certainty. So do you, do you see that? I mean, do you feel less strength of certainty because you're aware so much of all the things you don't know? Yes. Okay. Yes. And I've always <laughs> been a pessimist. And I always believe that an author is the best person to write a critical evaluation of their own work because they understand the limitations and constraints. Um, and inevitably, whatever length you're going to write at, you are providing a summary of your interpretation, let alone that being only a palimpsest of the past. But it's very interesting how different subjects have different personalities. So I think one of the reasons why, to my mind, um, a lot of military history is rather poor, although there are good military historians, is because many of the people who are attracted to military history are what you might call in very crude terms alpha males. They're people who are sort of beating their chest and asserting that, you know, World War Two was all settled by some weapon or other, um, or that X was the greatest general of all time, or that, you know, the, the fundamental way to understand things is what a surprise what they have written. And whereas, you know, the much more mature approach in the past is to say, you know, I think I write interesting history, but you know, it's not the only way to look at it. Um, and that is maturity. I'm afraid, you know, a lot of the um, historians who over the years I have, well, whether I, whether you consider them clashes or not, that may, that may, <laughs> as it were, um, I'm, I'm fairly... Uh, sort of um, eulogize the process. But when it, many of the historians I've disagreed with are historians who have very much presented only one way to look at it. And I've thought their way has its limitations. They've, you know, there's only point disagreeing with major figures. There's no point having a disagreement with a minor figure because it's not fair on them apart from anything else. But, um, you know, many major figures who, as it were, present their account as the correct account. And my God, do they get angry if you disagree with them? Wow. I mean, and which <laughs> indicates, well, it indicates something interesting. I mean, you could say that's insecurity on their part. I actually think in most people, most cases I'm talking about, it's a sort of pomposity, in fact. And there is a pomposity of office, which is very much seen um, in academic communities. You can see it in the United States, you see it in Britain, you can see it in France, uh, which are the three academic communities I know best. And, you know, the argument that if you're the, you know, Jay Briggs, the third professor at Princeton or the professor of Re Regis professor of history at Cambridge, your comments are inevitably better, which, of course, is a hilarious rubbish uh, as a proposition intellectually. And unfortunately, given the jobbery which leads 
you know, to so many of these appointments is, is, is actually demonstrably untrue. So historians might, one historian might say, this is the most important factor in X conflict or X campaign or X war. Another historian might say, no, no, it's this other thing. Is it oversimplicity and sort of doubling and tripling down on one cause or their cause or their interpretation of an event or their interpretation of a series of events that causes them to sort of lock down and what you're where they're they get very defensive if anyone comes at them because they built an entire career it reminds me of scientists have built they built an entire career on this interpretation of this if this changes because of the evidence or someone comes up with a more compelling argument that's very personally damaging and frustrating is that what they're doing where do you think the defensiveness comes in is it simply personal well, think, or no, is it actually attached to the work yeah i think you're absolutely right i mean i think you're completely right i think that there is a personal inadequacy there which you will see with many people i mean i find it quite flattering if people come along and show that i'm wrong <laughs> I, mean, I often show that i'm wrong myself i mean i find it quite flattering it shows that i'm playing a role and I often write books against other books I've written. So, <laughs> look, if, well, no, if you look, for example, at my war, the cultural turn and my technology and war, they're looking at warfare from two very different propositions and they're bouncing off each other. Um, and, you know, I think that's a mature way to do it, uh, particularly if you're a major scholar. Where hopefully you've got insights that are worth communicating. It doesn't mean you're right, but it means you're, the insights are worth communicating. Whereas I'm afraid to say there are many historians who attach themselves to a particular theory. And when, as you would anticipate, somebody comes along and says, well, actually, you know, that might sound good for Europe, but it doesn't work for China, or that right. might sound good for the 16th century, but it doesn't work for the 18th century, they get cross. And you would have thought they should actually be pleased that somebody is trying to help take the debate forward. I mean, I found this really rather interesting. I mean, a major historian, I mean, I'm happy to name him if you ask, but let's leave him in unnamed for the moment, a major military historian who I've disagreed with. I was once, somewhat to my surprise, asked to write an evaluation of him for the Heineken Prize, which is a major prize financially advantageous in, in Holland. And, you know, I wrote a very favourable account. I did mention that I disagreed with him on a number of points, uh, quite substantive points, but I wrote a favourable account, right, you know, explaining why I thought that he'd made a significant contribution which should be part of the debate and merited the prize. And I think I acted the right process and I would like to do the same again today, including for that individual. What I found hilarious uh, and actually a sad commentary on the, you know, the sort of the nature of the people that often go into academic research is I discovered it need hardly be surprised that he'd been stabbing me in the back, you know, writing <laughs> malicious things to people and saying I shouldn't be interviewed for jobs and such like. Um, you know, that's his prerogative. Everybody is different. But I would like to think that my approach is the more correct one in every respect, correct as an individual, but correct also in the world of scholarship. Um, but, you know, um, there is a lot of group thought in academe. The group thought is often a matter of patronage, personality and politics. Yeah. 
And I think that the historians are particularly prone to that. And if, like me, you're a maverick, which I am both self-consciously, I've always wished to, um, to take a tilt at established positions and to see how they can be um, re-evaluated, but also inevitably, because I work on different topics, everybody thinks I'm an outsider and an interloper. Uh, if that's the case, then you inevitably are going to get um, treated you know, very harshly. I mean, fortunately, and you could say, um, you know, my career has ended in failure as a result of that. And there are a whole host of things which mediocre people would say, oh, well, he's a failure. You know, he was never a professor at Oxbridge, never a fellow of the British Academy, never gave this lecture or that lecture. <laughs> my own view would be, I think that these are people who clothe themselves with rather empty titles and honours. And the most significant thing is, did you teach energetically well and with commitment to your students? And I definitely did. And did you try and communicate your knowledge as widely as possible and, and, and as thoughtful and accessible a fashion as possible? And I did. So I think both of those two were the really significant points. Um, I suspect it's what makes me even more unpopular. It's much, ni <laughs> it's much nicer for people to dislike you if they can then, you know, find things to really throw at you. So what you've said there about thinking about one of the hallmarks of what you would consider a successful career is, you know, that, that energetic focus on teaching. I mean, I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but it's certainly in America where there are universities known for their teaching and they're considered a little below the universities known as research universities where, and I eventually realized going through grad school, even just at a school that I think is considered mostly a teaching school, there were people there who were really focused and the school kept them there, not because they were very good teachers, but because they published things, because they had some idea that's popular, and, and all for good, it was a good idea they had, it's good research, but they clearly didn't enjoy the teaching. It was a hassle attached to the research. In your career, how did the work of writing and researching, how did that interact with the time you would spend going in front of students and talking with them? Well, well, first of all, I agree with you entirely about your comments. I mean, I was I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, a postgraduate at Oxford. I was pretty outraged. My supervisor at Oxford was a chap called Paul Langford, a good scholar. His book on the excise crisis is particularly good. Uh, he would see me once a term, and that was it. <laughs> Clearly, he begrudged the time. Right. Um, my college in tutor for my first year was a a very famous historian, uh, Keith Thomas, who taught, who saw me for a grand total of six minutes and clearly begrudged the time. So I was really unimpressed with what was on offer. Now, partly because of that, and partly because I suspect I'm quite a driven personality, uh, I was very concerned to make a success of the teaching. Yeah. Um, what helped me? Well, number one, what helped me was the uh, that I always teach without notes. I speak uh, and I listen and I talk to people, but I my I find that I can construct a lecture in my head as I'm going along and do that six times in successive lectures and then see students for another couple of hours. It doesn't cause me any real problem. I can still do that. Um, I can still give a lecture. I recently on, I think it was December the 1st or December the 2nd, gave a lecture for a conference at a Porto by Zoom. I was giving a plenary on um, 
18th century ideas of nationalism, essentially. And, you know, it was a topic I'd never, never spoken on before, not least because I wish to encompass China and, other, and, you know, give it a global uh, spin. And, yeah. you know, I thought to myself, you're not going to be able to do this, Jeremy. You're an old man. Give it a break. And actually, <laughs> it went very well. And they kindly wrote to me afterwards and said it was the best of all the lectures in the, uh, the conference. So I can still do it. And that was enormously helpful. I had a heavy teaching load at Durham and a heavy teaching load at Exeter. And as you probably know, the British system, I imagine it's the same in the United States, is the people that win grand awards from grant, great grant aiding bodies tend to be the people who have the lowest teaching load. And right. They come from prestigious universities. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, <laughs> I, I, I was not somebody who had, I had, I think, one during my entire 40 years uh, one outside award that bought out time, which was a leave for you for my book, book on the pursuit of knowledge. Uh, but, you know, I didn't have any of the others and you know, it didn't hurt me. Um, again, that's the sort of thing that makes people furious in the profession. Um, so, no, I was always interested in, in teaching and I developed some quite good techniques for seminars, for tutorials and for lectures and you know i operated quite actively for all three um towards the end i think it's fair to say that the university didn't like dynamic teaching methods i mean uh, there were complaints that i asked students questions in lectures which apparently intimidated them you just thought well gosh the world is changing isn't it because i was under the impression <laughs> education was interactive um, uh, and you know one had to sit in on each other's lectures for evaluation purposes i was actually struck by how boring so many of my colleagues lectures were whereas the one thing i would always try to do is be lively be original i think i have great believer that you have to try and be original yourself and interesting yourself and what one of the great advantages of, ne of always giving a lecture as it were from new often on a new topic uh, for yourself uh, is that there is a degree of my god what am i going to say here and that really fires up the adrenaline i mean i've got a lecture for an outside body um uh, this month uh, two this month i think and four next month you know they'll be on zoom i think one of them's in two of them are in person the others are on zoom um you know they'll be lively because i'm going to have to think what i'm going to say because none of them are lectures that i've given before <laughs> Um, when you were teaching, so very much thinking about what you could do in that moment to make things engaging and teach, what was the outcome? Did you have a clear outcome that you hoped students, uh, either a few students would be sparked in this kind of way, or all the students at least would get this? What was the outcome you were looking for? In your well, show? I was looking for two outcomes. Okay. One, to help everybody fulfill their potential. Now, their potential is going to vary. There isn't a... Uh, set limit and people have different aspirations but to help everybody fulfill their potential two i wanted people to learn how to think 
What I was not concerned about was that they should agree with me. And in fact, I would often say to students, you know, a sign of a good lecturer is you shouldn't necessarily know what they think. They will be arguing a case. Right. That, you, that they necessarily think that. They're trying to get you to think. And at, apropos of thinking, I would say to students, if you come out of one of my lectures and you know, know in your mind three reasons why I am wrong, then the lecture will have worked because I will have fired you up to think about it and fired you up to think independently and fired you up to articulate that thought. So those were my views. And, you know, I thought that they were substantive. I, I, I said, I don't want, you know, I'm going to sound very harsh to others. I don't mean to be harsh. Other people, no doubt, have their qualities and they're probably nice to their dogs. But many people in the profession cannot teach. They are essentially formulaic. They are yes. formulaic in their own approach and formulaic in what they expect from the students. And they, uh, as it were, adopt, um, and the internet and, uh, has made this easier for them, they adopt templates for teaching and templates for learning. That is not an approach that works. That is an approach that is very rigid. You need something that's much more fluid and that works with and for the individual student. And the I, great challenge yeah. in modern education, and I don't feel it's a challenge which we've successfully managed, certainly we haven't successfully managed in the British system, is to sustain high educational teaching levels of, of inspiration and explication and support for the students at the same time as educa higher education in Britain has become a mass access system. And I don't think that's worked in Britain. I don't think a lot of people have been capable of articulating that even as a goal. And as I said, their focus on templates or indeed on the code words of today, whatever those code words are, that let us often put uh, political wish, wish words like diversity or whatever there, they're right. often substitutes for thought about the difficulty of providing a good education or looked at in a different way, given that much of the staff can't do the job, you're better off uh, getting them to wobble on about things like diversity or political correctness or whatever, uh, whatever the context is of that in particular countries and obviously different in, say, China to the United States, um, although there's a similar patterning of ideological uh, cohesion um, but that's easier to try and uh, to try and uh, push forward than to say oh well we really want to see good stimulating teaching and by the way if you can't offer good stimulating teaching you're out that's generally the part again the 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 conflict between focusing on researching publishing ideas out into usually just academia usually not useful to the outside world but only within their field and then over the sort of undergraduates who are rolling through these classes you're forced to teach again as you've said it's a it's a hassle i just sent a letter of gratitude to some professor there's a this great professor i had in english class and it always shocked me he would always have reread anything we were rereading and he would show up with these questions either that have been hounding him for decades 
or new questions that had popped up to him. So he showed up like a student. It was the most amazing thing. The fact that the teacher was learning in the classroom with me, it was so revolutionary because generally that's not the way. If you've read enough and there's a bunch of youngsters coming in, what could they possibly have to teach you? What new idea could they possibly give you? Did you find you learned a lot from your students through the years? Yes, from the students and from also the stimulus of having to teach them anew. Yes. By anew, I mean new lectures, new classes. Um, so that was very exciting. There was also, I mean, it, you know, it's, it, there's no doubt about it. It's a, it's a strain as well. There's a performative quality to good lectures and seminars. Um, and you are putting on a performance and that performance is designed to interest, to stimulate, to encourage. Um, and that's, you know, that in a way only works if you have uh, interlocutors, the students, who are themselves stimulated. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a two-way process there. I don't see as this, I mean, you know, I'm, I know that there are many inadequate figures in the profession who think there is a trade-off between research and teaching. Right. I don't see it like that. I see them both as linked. One of the reasons I have written, I mean, obviously I've got skills, but one of the reasons I have written so widely is that I have taught very widely. And the stimulus, the great stimulus to writing is to know that you have taught on a subject and you've had to organize at least to the extent of giving lectures and classes right. your, your thought on them. So I actually do not see this trade-off. I also think that if you have done both research and writing, the two are not synonymous, though they're linked. If you have done both research and writing, I think you're a better teacher. But you are absolutely right that in the subject of history, I cannot speak about the sciences of medicine. I don't really know those subjects at all. But in the subject of history, too many inadequate people boast, boast about getting out of their teaching by some means or other, usually by getting their chums to fix them some research award or um, I mean obviously the you get people who rise up through the university systems to be a deputy vice chancellor or a provost or a vice chancellor in some cases they are distinguished academics we had at Exeter a man called Steve Smith who was a very distinguished scholar in uh, the theory of international relations you know proper proper scholar but many of them quite frankly are total mediocrities <laughs> So uh, off of off of teaching and on to your wide interest, it sounds like you now that you've uh, retired from teaching all the time, although it sounds like, hey, we'll still be out speaking and teaching and sometimes just want to have a class. You have this opportunity to delve into these maybe literature topics. And then again, you found time to you've got geography and history. You've already been writing books about. I really wanted to ask you about it seems like the bulk of what you've looked at, as you've said, you have wide interests and, and wide output, but military history, because I kind of wanted to think about what does a military historian who has spent years studying the before, during, and after of conflicts have to say about war in the big, big picture about how it fits into human history? And so I thought maybe the first question I'd like to ask, um, what to you are the most uh, compelling 
or frightening reasons that you see throughout history, nations or peoples waging war? Because we all agree, everyone says war is bad. We don't want war to happen. So we can take that as a given. Well, can I just, I, yeah, okay, please. Well, let, let me let me stop you there. <laughs> I, um, no, let me stop you there. I don't think war necessarily is bad. I mean, I think, uh -huh. for example, it would have been a jolly good thing if the United States had fought um, Nazi Germany earlier. So, you know, I mean, it was a jolly good thing that Britain went on fighting Nazi Germany in 1940. So I don't think war is necessarily bad, as you put it. I think war is certainly unfortunate, um, but it's not necessarily bad. It can be necessary. Bear in mind there are there is no shortage of just war theories. Many of them are religious, but there are non-religious just war theories. And as you all know, the notion of things like the League of Nations or the United Nations were international cooperation against what you might call, um, uh, you know, pathological states. Um, so I, I'm not sure that I would say that war is necessarily bad. And then one would take that a stage further. I mean, you might, you're an American. Are you saying to me, I mean, you know, you could have a proposition. It could be a possible sure. proposition that the northern states were wrong to fight the south you know in 1861 they should just simply have said these people want to leave we're just going to have we're just going to accept that it would be a wrong thing to fight them you know in which case state the proposition and we could discuss it and your listeners can discuss it but let's be clear about this if you are saying that war is bad you are saying precisely that many conflicts that it was thought at the time necessary and that since it has generally been seen by most people as necessary to wage those wars should not have been waged and I wouldn't go that far and I'd take that a stage further I deliberately mentioned the American Civil War because one of the key points about my work on war is I have written extensively of conflict which is conflict within states as well as conflict between them Mm -hmm. And I don't see necessarily a clear-cut distinction uh, between what one, what one uh, participant might see as um, rebellion and, and another participant might see as some kind of, you know, sort of more benign process. My view is you study them both technically as forms of conflict, well aware of the fact that some case, again, you're an American, I mean, are you seriously saying that in 1776, people should have said, well, chaps, we didn't really want to fight the Brits, so we're not going to declare independence. Let's just see if we can have a, a peaceful negotiation and get back to George III. I don't really think that's where you're coming from, but that's what the notion of saying that war is wrong means. Well, I want to, so I think I threw that out there, not that in, I believe that, but that I think there's a general tenor by millions of people around the oh, world. Oh yeah, but millions of people, look, can I just tell you, the intellectual <laughs> position is not made stronger by the fact that a large number of members of the public support it. A political proposition is made stronger because I'm a Democrat, but not an intellectual proposition. Is is so when you look at war throughout history so the conflict of maybe smaller tribes eventually into nation states eventually into larger empires warring against other tribes nation states empires 
whatever the conditions are that lead people to that armed conflict sometimes mean that the absolutely right thing to do, according to a certain moral calculus, is even if there are casual, innocent casualties, even if there are terrible things that happen, even if you sort of bring up a generation of people to throw at another enemy out there and those people maybe aren't don't feel politically or economically tied to the uh the the reasons why the war is being fought well overall that conflict was still okay even though there were terrible individual costs or terrible family costs the war was better by some calculus i just what kind of what how does your thinking play out when you look at conflicts and think this is a just conflict this seems like an unjust or un, more unfortunate conflict how do you piece that out well i think that's an interesting approach but it's not one it's not an approach i've really i mean i've written a book on uh, two books actually on why wars happen yeah uh, one in the 1990s and one a couple of years ago with Roman and littlefield but um I myself don't spend an enormous amount of time looking at just war theory. Um, I, um, I'm interested in the development of military systems and why people fight. Yeah. I'm rather wary of making judgments from the perspective of 2022 about decisions <laughs> people might have made in the past if those de decisions are evaluative. In other words, I might say, X had a limited understand. X could be an individual or a people or a group, political movement. X had a limited understanding of the factors motivating their would-be opponents. Um, that's, I think, a reasonable proposition to come up with. But a proper to to come up from the perspective of 2022 with some kind of proposition which decries entire value systems in the past, I think, is rather one's got to be rather cautious about let's just put it like that i'm so i'm completely with you i think that i think often but what you just said the thing you don't agree with is actually something that very powerful we could argue very intelligent uh academically storied people come out and make arguments i can tell you the reasons why this war should not have been fought i can tell you the reasons why as you said this person these people didn't have the information Oh, the emperor, again, the, the bombs dropped on Hiroshima, the decision for the North to say, you're not allowed to leave the country. Oh, it didn't need to be fought. This could have been dragged out. They wouldn't have left. You pushed too hard. I've even seen now there's much more interest in recent decades, kind of this counter history to the Revolutionary War about- Well, counterfactual, I mean, I've written yeah. a book on counterfactualism, as you may know. I mean, I think counterfactualism is reasonable if it returns you to the uncertainty of contemporaries. It's not reasonable if it um, works on propositions that weren't really feasible at the time. But it, I mean, if you go back to this question, somebody, you know, as you know, yes. you're, you're an American, you will, there's, you know, patterns of American revisionist historians, generally heavily politicized, yeah. have attacked things like the dropping of the atomic bombs or right. America's um, opposition to the Soviet Union in the mm -hmm. Cold War. Um, I think, I think that they're fully entitled to their views, but their views are often not based on an understanding or assessment of the factors motivating American policy at the time. They're more um, linked to uh, issues to do with American uh, contentious and often university politics. 
Um, but, you know, from my point of view, if I'm considering the relative effectiveness of cavalry-based si systems or non-cavalry-based systems right. in, say, 16th century world, I'm not actually sure that that bears much of a reference to modern political contention. I mean, maybe it does. Maybe I'm a completely naive figure. But I, I, you know, I mean, I, recent, I recently did what I think was a rather good book on fortification, history of fortifications, in which I discussed at the end the way in which we're more fortified than ever before, with, you know, mentioning things like the way in which people fortify houses with window locks or, you know, uh, gated communities and so on. But I wasn't making that in any way as a political comment, pro or anti the present day. I was just simply commenting on it. And the argument being that fortification is not something which is universally in the public sector and not something that's universally in the past. Um, so I think one can make, or I hope one can make, pertinent remarks which are not necessarily politically strident. I mean, I have political views. They are no secret. Um, and, you know, if you look at my website, um, there are pieces there in which I'm quite clear in my views on public history. But I, I, I don't see those as, as uh, dominating my perceptions of past topics. That's really interesting to me, and I have more sympathy for that view than, again, I do. I think there's a strand of history, especially today, where advocacy seems to become strong, a stronger and stronger motivation for academics. Academics, in order to prove the relevance of what they're studying, argue how whatever they're studying means we should change things now. So whatever yeah, that's this... Just naive, that's just naivety. That is just <laughs> naivety. It's naivety about their own role. It's naivety about society. And it's fundamentally very condescending. I mean, there's a marvellous book by the American scholar Harvey Chiswick on, came out some while ago, mm -hmm. on Enlightenment views of the poor. And what he is showing is the extent to which the philosophe, he's really writing about France, were really disparaging and contemptuous of the poor, um, you know, particularly presenting them as inherently conservative and superstitious, which was their way of describing religious. And that this obviously set up a problem for the revolutionaries, the French revolutionaries, or for that matter later, the Russian revolutionaries or Chinese revolutionaries, and you could say the would-be campus revolutionaries now, in which their argument would be that they have to ignore the democratic mandate because the bulk of the population is suffering from false consciousness and ignorance and they are in some way the saved and the blessed. Now, I who know the answers, I personally find that entire approach arrogant, foolish and really disgusting in some respects. I mean, it's very interesting that universities, if you take my university or the university that used to employ me, endlessly wobbles on about diversity and all the rest of it. The fact of the matter is 59% of the university students are women. So if they wanted to have some kind of whatever they mean by equality, they might like to address that. But of course, that isn't what they are on about. They're on about some kind of image of a different society, but one that conforms to their prejudices rather than actually something that could be looked at from outside. And somebody could say, ah, oh, yes, well, um, uh, we can see that you're willing to argue against your self-interest. And the fascinating thing is that so many of these people who wish to be 
um, uh, critics of society actually want to lead it, but will never operate against their own self-interest. How often in studying these armed conflicts do you see that revolutionary um, utopian fire in uh, either the elites or the politicians out of step with the people who are actually going to be thrown into the conflict at the bottom? In other words, when you go look at these wars that you've studied the closest, you feel like this is a legitimate bubbling up of uh, resource problems and uh, and well, I've looked, grievances. Can I just say, I've looked yes. most closely at two very different chronological periods. Okay. Number one, what I would call the long early modern, ending in 1815. And number two, um, the world wars and subsequently. And I think that the public politics of the two was, you know, there... There, whilst there are obviously overlaps, there are examples of uh, a degree of popular mobilization or whatever term you wish to use mm-hmm. um, in some earlier wars. Um, I do think that the great effect of 19th century changes of urbanization, mass education, mass literacy created a very different public for 20th century warfare. Um, uh, as did democratic politics and the habit of organizations through things such as uh, large-scale trade unions. So I myself would be loath to read back from, let's say, World War II, on which yeah. I've published four books. I'd be loath to read back from World War II to, shall we say, the Thirty Years' War between 1618 and 1648 in Central Europe. And... I don't mean by that that there isn't that there isn't a uh, a public consciousness or, con- or or plural of the latter in the second case, but I would just I'd be low. I'm not keen on producing a general law of war. Now, as you may know, I've recently brought out with Yale a short history of war, which essentially is forty short essays, um, and I think the whole point that I'm aiming at there is an understanding that at the global level, war is a diverse and varied phenomenon, and that it doesn't all develop in accordance with one chronology, whether that chronology is based in terms of weaponry, environmentalism, politics, or anything else. Um, And so I am deliberately arguing against the overwhelming pattern building. And as you will know, there are pattern building uh, books on the subject, um, mostly rather flawed ones because they focus largely on war in the West, by which one tends to mean uh, Europe, principally Western Europe, but not just Western Europe, and the United States. And you can see that in the Michael Howard book. You can see it, for example, um, to a considerable extent in the Margaret Macmillan book. Um, and you can see it in a lot of the literature, a lot of the literature on military thought um, relates to the same established group of thinkers, uh, principally European, though with usually Sun Tzu thrown in to provide some sort of supposed globalism. And I just don't find this very convincing. I mean, to me, war is a very varied phenomenon. Um, and if you're writing about modern warfare, it needs to be as much pertinent for Paraguay and Peru as it does 
as it as it is well you know paraguay major military power in yeah. the um late 19th century had a big war of course and then had another significant war in the 1930s um and the uh, but you know so you get the standard agenda i mean one of the books i recently brought out is a history of logistics and in it I take issue with the major work on logistics, which is by Maltin van Creveld, which if you look at, uh, at it, you will see is a book essentially about Europe um, over the last 300 years, and more particularly Napoleon to World War II. Um, now, to me, this is a ludicrously limited account of warfare. And to me, on top of that, on top of the limited cast, as it were, however defined, generals, battles, states, you have um, both explicit and latent in much literature on warfare, what I would call teleological and progressivist accounts. So progressivist accounts are notions of things like military revolution, in which you are arguing that war is moving in a certain direction in uh -huh. a developmental fashion. And then teleology would be linked to that, saying that, well, really, you had to move in that direction. And if you didn't move in that direction, you were going to be militarily redundant, let's say, Poland um, in the partitions in the late 18th century. I think these are ludicrously limited and limiting accounts of warfare. Um, and I'm really quite troubled by the way that um, that you often have half-baked, inadequate theory, um, sitting alongside what's often some really rather good work on the tactical level, the operational level, and things like weaponry. Um, but usually strategy is very poorly handled. Um, civil warfare, unless it's warfare with, as it were, proto-state systems, such as the American Civil War or the English Civil War, uh, is usually not handled terribly well. And the development of military systems is usually handled appallingly. Uh, the people that tend to have written best on it, in my experience, are area specialists. I mean, sinologists, people like the American scholar Peter Lorge on China is very good. Um, I think for the Ottomans, Gabor Agustan is very good. Again, uh, based in the United States. Uh, Kaushik Roy for India. I mean, there are good scholars out there, which really highlights how terrible a lot of the work is coming out of British and American academe. Where I think you point out a fundamental human problem in talking about how these histories fall short, which is that I can see it. I've read, you know, anybody who dances across the fields, you see these stories where somebody has really mastered something and they've really got some good insights about it because they've studied it enough. The temptation is always, we as the reader demand it and the writer can feel it in themselves how much fun it would be to present the grand theory for, so it's somewhere in their intro, somewhere inside the book, somewhere in their conclusion about what I think you should take away from this and what it means about war or whatever I'm talking about in the grand scheme of things. There's always that temptation. So, and we want it, they want to give it, what do you do? Well, I think you're right. But as I said, what my approach has always yeah. been to try and op argue for a multifaceted one. And as I've said, deliberately for an indeterminate view of warfare. Uh, by indeterminate, I mean that I am 
um, trying not to argue that there is a single chronology or cause of change or consequence for that. And, you know, you look at book after book of mine, um, you will see an attempt to engage with the variety of war in the past, you know, my war in the 18th century world, or my beyond the military revolution, which covers the 17th century, or my war 1450 to 1600. You know, I'm trying to write about Ethiopia as well as England, and deliberately so in order to emphasize variety, and to art and to undermine some account, um, which presents some kind of um, you know, supposedly explanatory um, uh, sort of what they used to call a Deus Ex Machina. In other words, the kind of, you know, God comes out of a machine in a 17th century Baroque opera in order to sort solve everything at the end. Um, I, I, you know, I'm just not convinced. Uh, and actually, I think it's totally wrong. My own view for what it is worth, and then yeah. I think we we must. My voice is starting to go. Of this course, should know this is January the first, and I am afraid I I stayed <laughs> up to celebrate the new year and then didn't get much sleep afterwards. Um, what I would say is this: that the most mature books are ones that are cautious. They throw out ideas without saying that those ideas are definitive. And what you should never under do, whether you're a teacher or a writer, is underrate the intelligence, the thoughtfulness of readers. Not all readers will be thoughtful, not all listeners will be observant, but a lot of them will be. And they are cheated, these readers, these listeners, they are cheated if you provide an easy explanation. When I get up and give a lecture, I know that allowing for time zones, there will be somebody else getting up at precisely that same moment somewhere else in the world on exactly the same topic, and their view will be different. And it is not the case that I am correct necessarily, uh, or even in, in any other phrase I wish to use. It is the point that both of these speakers will have points of view that are worthy of consideration. In my view, and here I will get off the fence, those that are most worthy of consideration are those that allow for alternative expositions and interpretations. And I think that is important to military history. We owe it to those people who risked their lives and lost their lives in the past, who do the same in the present and will do the same in the future, not to provide some easy and cheap account which satisfies some ideology of academic um, sort of cause or ideology of academic self-improvement for the academic themselves. What we owe it to people is an understanding of the complexity of the risks and worlds and experiences that they underwent and the ways in which the military systems in which they were encompassed and often killed by uh, developed. That's what we owe people. We owe it as well to our listeners, we owe it to our readers, we owe it to ourselves. We should not be lazy. In order not to be lazy, do you have a particular book out of your corpus that you would recommend to someone who thinks, I'm curious about this military history or Jeremy's take on it. Is there one somebody should start with? And is there a book written by someone else that you think people might get started with? 
Well, I, I, I do think my short history of, of war, which has just come out from Yale, I do okay. think that that's very, very useful because it's short and it's um, and it covers the world. Um, on the other one of mine, I'll come to other people's in a second. The other one of mine, which has come out recently, is my mapping World War Two, World War Two in a hundred maps, which is really interesting and includes a lot about not just there's lots of maps in it, but a lot about the way in which mapping was handled, strategic, tactical, operational, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, aspects of the war. As far as other people's um, books are concerned, um, I've already mentioned a number of the scholars who I think are particularly good. I've mentioned Peter Lodge on China, Kaushik Roy on India, uh, Gabor Agustin on um, uh, Turkey, or the Ottoman Empire, I should say. Um, I think that you would find John France on medieval Europe very good. Um, I think anything that Wayne Lee writes is very good. I think the American scholar Stephen Murillo um, has a lot of very interesting stuff uh, from a medieval perspective, but right, ranging more widely. So I think, I think I've mentioned a number of people there. All of those are worth reading. And, you know, um, I, I also would urge people to look at the Journal of Military History, which is the best of the journals out there on the history of war.